It's Thursday, April 20th, 2023, and welcome back to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the world. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism, but I'm not the only Hoover Fellow who's podcasting these days. I recommend you go to our website, which is hoover.org. Go to the tab at the top of the homepage. It says commentary, uh, then head over to multimedia and up will pop 18, no, excuse me, 17 audio podcasts and all, uh, including matters of policy and politics, which is the top of the page. Joining me today for a conversation about economics and a few other things on his mind is Kevin Hassett. Kevin is a Hoover Institution Distinguished Visiting Fellow. He's also a former chair of the White House's Council of Economic Advisors, a post held by two Hoover Institution senior fellows, Michael Boskin and the late Eddie Lazier. Kevin's also an accomplished author of books he's written, including Dow 36,000, Bubbleology, The Amazing Science of Stock Market Bubbles, and most recently, The Drift, Stopping America's Slide to Socialism. That could never happen in America, Kevin. Yeah, we'll never stop it, probably. <laughs> but hey, thanks for coming on the podcast, my friend. Uh, you and I may be the only two sober people in California at this hour, as it is literally 420 in the afternoon on 420 here, and people are out imbibing and having a rather good time. But let's talk about more serious matters, shall we? Absolutely. So we're going to start with something not economic here, Kevin, and I think it's appropriate seeing as you and I are children of the new frontier, ultimately. Um, you mentioned the other day you happened to run into our Hoover colleague, Paul Gregory. And Paul's interesting guy to mention because Paul recently filmed an episode of uh, Hoover's On Common Knowledge with Peter Robinson. The topic of all things was Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, long story short, Paul's father was an emigre from Siberia. He spoke Russian. Uh, Paul and his family lived in northern Texas, and they socialized in a circle that was called the Dallas Russians. Um, eventually, in the early 1960s, they came across Lee and Marina Oswald. Paul ended up getting tutored twice a week from Marina Oswald, then ended up doing all sorts of chores with the Oswalds. He didn't have a car, so they drove around. In short, he spent a lot of time in the company of Lee Harvey Oswald and kind of got a read on his character. The thrust of the book, and I recommend you um, – Purchase it. It's called Oswald, an untold account of Marina and Lee, is in Paul's estimation, this guy did it. And he did it alone. Paul's reasoning is that Lee Harvey Oswald was secretive. He was prone to angry outbursts, had an inferiority complex. He wanted to impress his estranged wife. In short, all the makings of a lone wolf assassin. And you, Kevin Hassett, you ain't buying it. Yeah, and, and I have to say that that uh, you know, people really should read everything that, that Paul writes, that he's just absolutely one of my most treasured colleagues. And, uh, you know, my, my story, and I'm just an economist, but this is the kind of thing we do on podcasts, right, as we talk about, like, hobbies as well, is that I grew up in Massachusetts uh, in a family that is Irish Catholic and that absolutely worshipped JFK. Uh, and so, you know, basically my, my dad, who's no longer with us, sadly, was obsessed with, you know, conspiracy theories. And I've kind of grown up with the uh, you know, like, I guess, a curiosity about it. Um, and, and I've read a million books about it. And and, and so, uh, you know, I, I think that Paul's point, just to summarize it slightly differently than you did, Bill, is that he knew Lee very well, because he was over their house all the time getting tutored by Marina. Yeah. And that Lee was, uh, you know, in addition to being the kind of guy who, who potentially might be a lone wolf assassin, he was not the type of guy that was a leader of men, so he wouldn't have been able to recruit someone to go do something with him because that's just he was a guy who did not make you feel confident in his his competence. Right. Uh, and and he was also uh, very unpredictable. Uh, and and so therefore, if you were like, you know, the CIA or the FBI or whoever, or the, you know, Castro or whoever people say maybe did it, 
then he's not the kind of guy that you would recruit because he's just unpredictable and unreliable. Uh, and, and so Paul's point about that is is you know very solid. But but the thing is that there are just so many uh, mysteries surrounding the death of JFK that mm-hmm. that I still feel like there's something else going on. Uh, and and the thing that I would commend uh, to our listeners is that there's a book called Mary Mary's Mosaic uh, about Mary Pinchot Meyer who about a year after the assassination of JFK was herself assassinated uh, by, it, you know, the police concluded a trained assassin. It was a bullet to the head and a bullet to the heart. Boom, boom. Yeah. Uh, and she was on the towpath, which is the nice hiking path from next to the Potomac River when this happened. And she was the childhood sweetheart of JFK and was his mistress. And that's not, you know, like a theory that just is, but she was also divorced and her husband uh, was in the CIA. Uh, her ex-husband was in the CIA. And when her sister, who was married to Ben Bradley, of all people, who ended up the Washington Post, running the Washington Post, uh, when they went over to her house, they found the CIA had broken into her house and they were strafing through all of her books. Like these, these are all things that are kind of known. Um, and, you know, a childhood uh, friend of one of her sons spent his life obsessing over this. And he wrote a book called Mary's Mosaic. And right. it's extraordinarily thought provoking. And and I think that that he more or less proves to me that the CIA, uh, you know, killed Mary Meyer or, or was somehow engaged in that. Um, the evidence for that is that, you know, at first it was a trained assassin, but but in the trial they tried to frame a homeless man, and then they, you know, the guy got off because they didn't have any evidence. But there was a jogger uh, who was part of the effort to frame the homeless man. And, um, you know, the author of the book, Mary's Mosaic, was able to track that guy down over time and demonstrate that he was very, very, very likely a CIA agent uh, and and presumably then a trained assassin. Uh, and, and, and so all that kind of stuff suggests to me that that there is something in there going on. Um, and And, you know, as economists, what we do is take the facts and then think about, well, what's the theory that explains it? And. And, you know, we don't have to go into the grassy knoll part of the, of the whole thing. It just seems to me that, you know, it, it, again, Mary, Mary's sister uh, says in, in the book is quoted by the author that um, that Mary had a diary that the CIA stole and burned. Uh, right. And her sister had looked at the diary. And in the diary, she said that JFK was very worried that the CIA was going to try to kill him. Uh, and, and so anyway, so... Yeah. You know, these these are things to puzzle about. Like, why would the CIA want to do it? Um, what was going on back then? You know, and I think we'll never know the answers. But but I think that the the lone wolf gunman thing is is you know probably like a reasonable uh, explanation for for what happened that day. Sadly, although you know, I, I I myself have some questions about that. But our our co- our colleague, one of our colleagues, is a general, said, "Yeah, that's a shot that you know any any trained marine can take," and so on. Uh, but but I think that there's so many other things like why was JFK's mistress assassinated, you know, thereafter that I think we're, you know, we're still going to be digging into those things for hundreds of years, probably before we get to the bottom of it. I know. And we're approaching the 60th anniversary of it. And uh, let me ask you a question, though, since you have uh, worked at the upper levels of government, you go back and you look at JFK's time in Washington and his presidency. It's a very kind of clubby, chubby town. There are a lot of people high up in government who went to the same set of schools and they all kind of live in the proximity of each other in Georgetown and they're they're socializing together and they're partying together and they're just kind of a very close faction. But how does that stack up versus the Washington of today? 
Oh, it's very, very similar. And, um, you know, that basically uh, there are uh, two elite private schools, uh, well, actually three, but but St. Albans and the National Cathedral School, are, it's almost like the same school, the so, Cathedral so, School, so, Sidwell, so. St. Albans is for boy, and then there's Sidwell. And, and you know, probably, you know, a, a large fraction of the uh, children of like political people you see on TV go to one of those schools that the parents hang out with each other, you know, from elementary school on at, you know, the baseball, the school baseball games and things like that on the sidelines. And so, so there really is like an enormous amount of, of clubbiness, um, you know, one of just even like for myself, one of um, the uh, uh, Biden's top advisors, for example, uh, Bruce Reed, uh, is uh, his son Nelson uh, played on the soccer team I coached? Right. <laughs> right. So Bruce Bruce goes way back. Bruce goes back to I think Clinton in the DLC days, doesn't he? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and, I, and I'm a big fan of Bruce's. And and uh, but but again, it's just like it's a small world in Washington. It's a small town. Everybody knows everybody else. I live there, and and yeah, you see you see it all the time. Um, and, and in fact, uh, you know that the Biden officials are constantly playing tennis at the tennis court across the street from my house. <laughs> and so I see them there and say hi. Funny. So we crossed paths on the Stanford campus the other day. And Kevin, you told me that uh, something that's been on your mind lately is the death of curiosity. What What are you getting at here, the death of curiosity? Yeah, I I think that the thing that, that you know, I love about your podcast, Bill, and, and I love about being at Hoover, um, especially in the faculty lounge, right, that it is that everybody here just seems so kind of curious about everything. And, right. and so, so you know, we, we've got, um, we brought in this new scholar uh, who was a curator of the San Francisco Art Museum, and his name's escaping me right now, but we could Google it while we're doing it. But he was just hanging out, having a coffee. And then, you know, I sat down and talked to him for 45 minutes. And I was so, like, intrigued by all this stuff that's going on at the Museum of Modern Art and you know, like how to think about modern art. And, it, it, you know, it's just, if you're curious about like, well, why are people paying $200 million for this splotch, <laughs> right? It's a really wonderful thing. And, and and the thing though is that, you know, I think that the, the Democratic Party, the, the Democratic intellectuals seem to have lost their curiosity. And I've been like stewing about what that means and why that is, but but I, I have two examples of it. Um, that I think kind of stoke the imagination for that question. One is just that um, that because uh, of deregulation and fracking that happened during the Trump administration, there was a massive increase, very well documented, in natural gas production and consumption in the U.S. Oh yeah, Neil, Neil Benesra, right? Neil Benesra uh, is a brilliant man and really fun to talk to. Uh, and I look forward to seeing what he does here. Here. But but you know the the fact is that because of the explosion of, of natural gas production, um, then natural gas became more commonly used uh, by uh, utilities when they're generating power, and then natural gas substituted for coal, uh, and so it turns out that during the Trump years the CO two emissions uh, went down by in the U S by more than any other country, and in fact they went down by more than was the simulated effect of President Obama's clean power plan. And so perhaps for Republicans, unintended consequence, if you think that they don't care enough about climate change, uh, of their uh, deregulation was a big positive impact on climate change. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it, it, there are a lot of people out there very emotional about the climate change issue, 
if you were to say you don't care at all about climate change on the Stanford campus, there'd probably be like you'd be assaulted by 19 year olds. Right. Um, but but it feels like the idea that, that we made all this progress uh, during the Trump years because of natural gas is kind of like a taboo subject. And, and then, of course, those um, policies that led to all the progress on climate change were reversed immediately by President Biden. And nobody's talking about it. And so, and so my point is, if you really do care about climate change, you really do think that CO2 emissions are contributing uh, to global warming in a way that's extremely harmful, then shouldn't you be curious about how, you know, what it was that made CO2 emissions go down uh, in the Trump administration and what you can do to take advantage of those effects that we now know are there? Uh, are, are you saying that, are you saying that thinkers and intellectuals, Kevin, are are not intellectually curious or they're afraid to be intellectually curious because politics today is very tribal. Social media has made things very harsh. So there's kind of a distinction here. Are people actually thinking these thoughts or are they afraid to express these thoughts? That's that's exactly the kind of thing that I'm wondering about, right? Uh, but but I could say, though, that, that you can't really, you know, state that you're a person who cares about climate change. Right without referencing, you know, basically the progress that was made in the Trump administration, if you're an honest scientist, and then thinking about why that happened and whether, you know, and it could be that like all the coal that can be replaced by natural gas has been. And so that going forward, that effect that we saw over those years can't be reproduced. I mean, it could be, right? It's not something that, that we've studied, but you would think that people would be curious about it. And the second thing is, is that, um, and we could talk more about this, but but uh, for social justice, you know, one of the things that seems like it's a point of conflict between the left and the right is, you know, their ideas about income inequality. I think conservatives generally care about equal opportunity and believe that if there's inequality, then it's, you know, mostly because there are people that work hard and people who don't, right? Like to maybe form a caricature of the conservative view. And, and then the liberal view is income inequality is really, really important, needs to be addressed by government policy, and is the result of, you know, the power the rich have over the poor. And there's almost like a Marxist kind of abuse, of, you know, capital abuse of labor. And and, and so, but I, I can tell you, though, that the income inequality throughout my lifetime has been one of the main things that you see people, Democrats talk about uh, right. when they're talking about economic policy. And so if there's a reduction in the corporate tax rate or something, it's a giveaway to the rich, right? Uh, and, um, you know, all the subsidy programs uh, for low-income people are meant to reduce inequality and so on. Well, well, once again, um, you know, based on the academic work, I, the literature that, that I actually helped start where we looked at the impact of corporate taxes on blue collar wages, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we said in the Trump administration before our tax cuts were passed that they would lead to a big increase, that the corporate tax cut would lead to a big increase in blue collar wages. Uh, and then what actually happened after the fact is that uh, wage growth for people in the bottom 10% uh, of the wage distribution was more than double uh, wage growth for people at the top. And the uh, Gini coefficient, which is the, the measure economists have for overall inequality, uh, declined pretty sharply, uh, something that it hadn't really, you know, there's been a sort of trend of increased inequality uh, that's been going on, you know, at least since the Second World War. Mm -hmm. And so once again, you know, you know, where's Thomas Piketty when you need him? Uh, we've got an interesting break in, in a long trend, a historical trend of increased inequality. And inequality went down. 
And then once again, the Biden administration comes in and rather than thinking about, well, we actually care a lot about income inequality, it just went down. Let's study why that happened and think about if we can accelerate that effect and how we could do that. Instead, it's basically, again, taboo to talk about the fact that Donald Trump <laughs> presided over, you know, a big decrease in inequality, that he he was a very powerful force for social justice as measured by the left. Uh, and you just can't talk about it. And it, we're not even curious about it. We just don't talk about it. And 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 so my view is that, you know, when you, there are a lot of you, know, you and I both have a lot of friends who are Democrats that aren't writing about these issues <laughs> who who we have high regard for. Um, and, and so but my question is that where is the curiosity and why is it is it not there and what can we do to rekindle it? Um, because I think it's essential. I think that, that, you know, to the extent that there are bipartisan successes over time, and there have been a lot, you know, in, in policy history, like the opportunity zones that Jared Bernstein, uh, Biden's nominee to BCA chair, and I, we wrote the first paper on, we invented those, those things, helped invent those things. Um, you know, there are a lot of bipartisan success stories, but they, I think, tend to come from conversations like you and I had with Paul. Right. All of a sudden you're sort of saying, well, how does one affect it? When did inequality go down? Why did it go down? What can we do to make it? We both agree we want to do that. So what can we do to make it happen? Uh, but we've somehow entered a world where, where that doesn't happen. And, and I think that that's a metric, my final sentence, uh, that's a metric of what's really, really wrong in society right now. Kevin, yeah, when did the lemmings show up in Washington? And by that, I mean, uh, somebody runs for president, a president has an issue he puts out, and you get the obligatory group letter that's signed. I'm looking, for example, this Fortune article for September 21st, 2021, headline, 17 Nobel Prize winning economists back Biden's $3.5 trillion Build Back Better plan. Uh, have they looked at the plan? Do they really believe what they're writing here? Or are they doing it just because it's their camp? You know, and, and, and a caution, by the way, both Republicans and Democrats play this game. Yeah, of, of course. And, um, you know, I, I think that that uh, one thing that you have to recognize is like a backdrop, and this is something that I talk a lot about in the drip, Stopping America's Slide to Socialism, is that the left more or less controls American universities, but they also control, uh, you know, awards, right. and most of the, the prizes. And, um, you know, Jeremy Bentham has this marvelous uh, essay called On Argument. Um, I'm sure you've read it, yeah. Bill. And, and, and in there, he goes through, like, what's a good argument? What's a bad argument? And, and he states that uh, appeal to authority is the lowest form of argument. And so if, if you, Bill, were to say, well, why is it? You know, someone says, Bill, why is that true? And then, and then you were to say, well, because Kevin Hassett says it's true. Yeah, it's not an argument, right? right. That's what Bentham's saying. Um, and and but but the left very often is proposing things that there's little evidence to support, right? right. And when there's little evidence to support stuff, uh, then you don't really have an argument. Uh, but if you have a Nobel Prize winner who's like, you know, trust me, I'm smarter than you, and we should do it, uh, then you know, basically, you you can potentially have a political impact. And so one of the things that the left does is that it, it anoints authorities, and then those authorities, you know, make strong, unsubstantiated uh, assertions about, you know, far left policies uh, in order to, you know, help give cover to politicians that pursue them. And I view that behavior as pretty unethical. Um, you might recall that when that three and a half trillion was passed, John Cochran and I came out almost the next day, wrote an article saying that this is going to cause runaway inflation, which it did. And the fact that, you know, you can have people have a Nobel Prize and ignore that 
Um, it doesn't seem plausible to me. Uh, I think that, that these people were playing a political game. They harmed the economy and they can't be so stupid. They got a Nobel Prize that they didn't know that they were going to harm the economy. Uh, you know, I, I really so I, I have really low regard. The one thing I, for the people who did this, but it is a club uh, of people that use, you know, their Nobels as authority. Not every Nobel Prize winner, like Gene Fama is a good friend of you know. There are a lot of Nobel Prize winners that deserve it. There are a lot of left-wing Nobel Prize winners that deserve it, like Joe Stiglitz is a genius. Uh, he wrote a lot of great papers. But but now that they have it, the Nobel Prize is a big net negative. Like They, they should just shut it down uh, because you create uh, people like Paul Krugman who uh, engages in a lower form of argument than Jeremy Bentham ever envisioned, which is that he uses appeal to authority as his only argument, His own, really the only argument that he has, and the authority uh, he appeals to is himself. Yeah. And don't get me started on Barack Obama getting a Nobel Peace Prize one, one year. Oh, in the yeah. It, you know, it's what the left does to try to you know, you know, basically uh, uh, give themselves respectability and withhold it from conservatives. Yeah. But, you know, Kevin, we've come a long way from growing up and seeing three out of five dentists recommend this toothpaste and things like that. And it seems that we have some real institutional problems here with intellectuals. You know, I'd point you, for example, to the Hunter Biden laptop saga and what you mm -hmm. had 51 former intelligence officials writing a letter saying that, no, this is fake. Well, they didn't know otherwise. They just did it to provide cover for the for the guy they planned on voting for. And that's right. And and those people, you know, like basically I have very, very low regard for them and we should stop listening to them. You know, I have a a friend that's involved in a kind of uh, controversy, he's got, he's being uh, um, charged with uh, doing something wrong in his taxes. Mm -hmm. And um, it's costing him a lot to defend himself. And, and I'm highly confident that he didn't do anything wrong. I'm not going to say his name, though, of course, to respect his privacy. Right. But, 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 you know, the, the, the point is that the power of government is significant. Um, they're, um, you know, basically making him have to spend a lot of money for lawyers. And then he said to me, well, do you think that that any, you know, friends might get together and pool their money and help me pay for my lawyers? Because, you know, I don't I've already spent, you know, half a million dollars on lawyers. I'm running out of money. Right. And I basically said to him, no, because it, you know, people, you never know if somebody's innocent. Right. Like even if you really like someone, you know, like like <laughs> you go back and look at like, like the serial killers uh, that, that are most famous. Right. We're charming people. That's 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 how they, they lured people away. Like Ted Bundy lured people away uh, by being so charming. And, and, and the fact that he's a serial killer, you know, certainly surprised people right before they were being killed. And so the point is you can't you don't know if, if somebody's innocent, uh, even if they're a person that you, you've known your whole life. And, and so this idea that people would come out and say, oh, Hunter's innocent. This stuff is Russian disinformation. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it's something that, that, you know, even if Hunter were Mother Teresa, you shouldn't do, right? Because you don't know. Right. <laughs> you just don't know. Uh, and the fact that they did it means that, that they're, you know, untrustworthy, frankly, uh, malicious people, immoral people. Uh, uh, who are willing to lie to the American people, just like those 17 Nobel Prize winners. The final thing about the Nobel Prize winners, by the way, just as an aside, Bill, is don't forget that George Akerlof very justifiably won a Nobel Prize for his Market for Lemons paper, which we can talk more about if you'd like, but it's a wonderful, creative paper that absolutely is worthy of a Nobel Prize. What, and, what, is, the, what is the premise? Yeah, uh, I'll finish the thought and then I'll tell, say okay. the premise. The, the thought is just that he's married to Janet Yellen. Uh, and and so he, you know, I, I I excuse George being political. His wife's the Treasury Secretary. He's going to defend his wife. I respect that. Um, but everybody else, <laughs> you know, I'm not so sure. The Market for Lemons paper is very interesting. It, it's just um, it makes the point 
that the facts, so think about it as used cars. Mm-hmm. Um, so so the, there are all sorts of cars that are three years old in, right. in America, you know, and, and like you might have a car that's three years old. You know, I, I actually have a car that's about three years old right now that I'm driving. But then a subset of those cars get put up for sale. Right. Uh, and, and George's point is that when something a subset of some something is is being put up for sale, then those things are probably the lemons because you know like you owned a car and and now you're selling it and so you must not like it. And so that when um, you know and there are a lot of markets like this so so classic application of George's insight, suppose you have two uh, companies that appear to have about the same type of business and the same earnings. Mm-hmm. And for one of the companies, the CEO has been selling the stock. And the other one, he hasn't. You, which, which one do you want to buy? Mm-hmm. And the answer is, well, I, I, if the CEO is selling the stock, then there must, you know, there must be a lemons problem. Uh, and, and, and so the fact that something's for sale uh, can actually signal that there's something wrong with it. And, and the conditions where that ends up being super economically meaningful and everything, you know, there's a lot of fancy math in George's paper. But, but it was a really, really tremendous insight that, that it's a challenge when you're thinking about markets and how they work, if the the mere fact that something's for sale might signal that it's you know it's it's not very good. Since you brought up Janet Yellen, I want to go back to Jack Kennedy and the New Frontier for a minute. Uh, and this ties in really the death of curiosity, and it's also in Washington the lack of I guess I would say intellectual dexterity, or put another way, just a willingness to think outside the box. And if you look at Kennedy's administration, Kevin. His Treasury Secretary, this is how it ties with Janet Yellen, his Treasury Secretary is a fellow named Douglas Dillon. Douglas Dillon was a Wall Street investment banker. Can you see a Democratic president bringing up a Wall Street investment banker as a Treasury Secretary? Now, Elizabeth Warren would machine gun that person in a confirmation hearing. But if you go deeper into the Kennedy administration, Kevin, here's what you find. Kennedy was urged by his CEA, his Council of Economic Advisors, to spend money like crazy to basically do another new deal to address unemployment. And Kennedy said no. Why? He didn't want to jack up the deficit. He was already thinking about 1964. There was, I think, we'll laugh at this, a $7 billion deficit at the time of the country. But he did not want to have that head hung around his neck in 1964. What does he do instead? He proposes tax cuts in 1963, income tax cuts, uh, cutting from a range of 20 to 91 percent down to 14 to 65 percent. Kennedy wants to reduce corporate tax rates from 52 to 47 percent. If you go deeper in the weeds with Jack Kennedy, he gave a speech on October 31st, Halloween of 1960. You weren't around yet, but I was. I was just a newborn by then. Uh, on the eve of the election, and you know what he's talking about? He's not talking about missile gaps to New Frontier. Kennedy's talking about balance of payments. And it's a fascinating speech to read because in it, he lays out a problem with an import-export balance. He talks about uh, inflation being a problem in the country. Steel prices had doubled during the 1950s. He wants to loosen restrictions on investment capital. Kevin, it's kind of an evergreen speech for Republicans. Somebody running in 2024 could pretty much give that speech today. And that's by John Kennedy in 1960. Yeah, I mean, John Kennedy was a great man. He really was. And and I think... uh... Yeah, the Democrats that that remind us of what a great president he was in order to, you know, bring back the glory years of their party or remind that that, you know, their you know, Democratic president can be very successful. You know, they 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 point to him, but but they don't point to his policies. You know, I have a funny Jack Kennedy story, which so so uh Professor uh, Richard Musgrave, uh, who's a Harvard uh tax professor, he's really like a pioneer in the economic modeling of taxes was at the CEA under Kennedy. And at one point at a uh, economic conference, uh, he told me the following story. 
um, that Kennedy was worried about a recession um, and he wanted to do something about it. And he asked uh, Musgrave, well, what should I do about it? And, um, and, and Musgrave said, well, we, we could do accelerated depreciation, sort of like the progenitor of yep. the expensing that everybody always argues we should do today that is, you know, was part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And, um, and Kennedy said to him, you know, I'm not to accelerated depreciation. Um, I can't give a speech about that. Right. You know, that, that I, you know, it, it can work. Is, is there some other way to get the same effect? And so then knowing the math of how the cost of capital works, Dick just sort of thought about it for a minute. And he said, well, yeah, we could just, um, instead of like tying it directly to depreciation, like how long you write off the, the, you're allowed to write off the value of the machine. We could just give people a credit that's equal to the present value of the write-off. And, and, and then Kennedy said to him, yeah, you're right. We could call it the investment tax credit. I can give a speech about that. Yeah. And, and so then Kennedy, Kennedy invented the investment tax credit. And, and so then it, it was, you know, and, and which is really just like a different way to do the expensing that Republicans love today. But but the investment tax credit came on and off during recessions and every recession after that, uh, either in the form of an investment tax credit or accelerated depreciation. But it's an example of Kennedy's, uh, you know, academic uh, vigor that he was willing to sit there with a Harvard professor and figure out like a cool way to redo the math so that it not only had the same positive effect, but also had like a, a better title so that he could give a speech about it. Did you purposely choose Vigor? Because Kennedy loved to say Vigor. That was a big new Viga? frontier term. Vigor. Yeah, we have Vigor. <laughs> yeah, big new frontier term. His accent, I'm from Massachusetts, and his accent's a lot different from mine. I can say that. <laughs> yeah, poor. What happened to poor Von Meter? Uh, you know, so you look at today's Washington, Kevin, is there a Jack Kennedy out there in terms of ability to not think like the rest of his party does on economics, at least. I know you could probably point to Joe Manchin, but Joe Manchin's doing parochial West Virginia stuff. Kennedy is looking at big picture national topics. You know, I I, I think that that yeah, there probably is. We but we don't know. You know who who they are. You had mentioned. You know, could you get a Wall Street person yeah. uh, confirmed today if you're a Democrat because of Elizabeth Warren? You know, Elizabeth Warren played all sorts of d- dirty tricks uh, for for against me when I was up for Senate confirmation. Uh, and despite the fact that I had the, the support of the vast majority of Democrats, even in the Senate, um, she held me up really for months uh, with dirty tricks. And um, she gave a floor speech opposing me when I finally came to the Senate floor for a vote. And, and she said that you should oppose me because I'm a tool of Goldman Sachs. Uh, and, and, and when she said that, I didn't actually watch the debate. I read the transcript after because it was going to be too upsetting for me <laughs> to watch people, you know, beat up on me. But but when she said that, I thought to myself, where I saw she said that, geez, you know, I'd, I'd be a lot richer than I am if I wasn't tool Goldman Sachs, <laughs> right? It's almost like I wish, but but you're really right. Um, but you know, Bob Rubin was was a really good Treasury Secretary, a very fiscally responsible uh, Wall Street guy, um, you know. Uh, Gary Gensler has, has uh, who's running the SEC, is doing a lot of stuff I disagree with, but but you know he's got a Wall Street background, and and so I, I you know I think that there are people you know in the party that they can draw on if if they're willing to, and the sad thing is just that you know Joe Biden is in a position of, of significant power. He was part of the Obama administration, um, you know he worked closely with Bob Rubin, and so why is he giving us you know people who are being so reckless instead? It, it, it's a real shame. Somebody, what's going to happen, though, is that, that we can spend a little bit of time on this is the economy is going to fall apart 
because right. of all of their policies. And at that point, the Democrats are going to ask themselves, well, why did the economy fall apart? What did we do wrong? And at some point, I think that there'll be room for another Bill Clinton who came in and he just sort of said, hey, guys, you know, you can't you can't spend so much. You know, like right now, they've increased spending so much, for example, Bill, that um, that interest payments are uh, set to be a trillion dollars a year over the next 10 years. Uh, and the defense budget is like, what, 800 billion. And, and, and so they've run the debt up uh, so much since they came in, about $6 trillion. And interest rates have gone up so much because of the inflation that the Nobel Prize winners told you couldn't happen, uh, right. that, that we're now spending more on interest than we are on defense. And, and, and the point is just that that's, that's a recipe for disaster for an economy. Right. Uh, just because you're not buying, like if you spend money on defense, then it's not, it's actually not a negative for GDP. But if you're paying interest to the Chinese, it is. And and so it's uh, like Ross, Ross Perot's giant sucking sound. It really, it really is there. And so my guess is that what happens to the Democratic Party when, you know, the economy finally hits the wall, which I think is sort of doing right now, mm-hmm. um, you know, do they decide that they want to be even more socialist? Um or do they, you know, go back and find a Bill Clinton type person who's willing to hire Bob Rubin? Yeah. So I think the next time you're in the company of our boss, Condoleezza Rice, Kevin, you should maybe mention your confirmation experience and then do this. Ask her about her confirmation experience. Her confirmation vote for Secretary of State was 85 to 13. See if she can name all 13 who voted against her. I know that she remembers Barbara Boxer in her own state voting against her. Yeah, I had 83 votes, but there were two people absent that were going to vote for me. So we actually ended up with about the same the same vote, but but I can tell you though that that I really, as you know, Condi of course did, took my job very very seriously. That my job was there. I wasn't, you know, working for Donald Trump. I was working for the American people, and I was working for the senators too. You know that I was there as the CEA person whose job it was to tell people honestly, if you do this, here's what happens to the economy. And I had the uh, congressional record of my vote in, framed and put next to my desk. Uh, and when I got called by senators, which happened practically every day, then if it was somebody who voted for me, I thanked them for the vote. And if it was somebody who voted against me, I told them that, hey, no hard feelings. You know, I understand that, that you know, we're not going to agree on everything and you voted against me, but it doesn't mean that I'm not going to do my best to work effectively with you. And, and, and you know, I, I think that having that list, remember the names, it's actually pretty important because uh, I, I actually really respect, you, you know, Senator Cortez Masto from Nevada. Um, really did a good job of, of which I didn't expect any one of them would be able to do. I'm kind of, you know, the, the Irish guy from Massachusetts is always overconfident, right? right. Uh, and and uh, but but she did a really good job. Her staff did a great job of researching like the stupidest things I ever said. <laughs> <laughs> and it turns out we've all said stupid things if you you, you know if we're out in public for as long as, as you and I have been. And 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 you know I thought that that's exactly what the founders envisioned. Right. Was that you have a confirmation hearing and the senators stress you and put you on the spot. And if you can't handle having a senator, you know, basically say, well, why the heck did you say this? Um, you know, one of the things I said at one point uh, was the Dodd-Frank Act was the stupidest bill in the history of the United States. Uh, and the point is, the Dodd-Frank Act is a really terrible act. Right. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of things that were worse than it, like the fugitive slave Stupid's a pretty. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's just like you know. So it's a really bad thing for me to have said, and, and I just apologize uh, for it. But I, but I think that if you can't take that, if you can't take that kind of abuse, then you shouldn't have a high-ranking job, right? And and it's not abuse even; it's just challenge. 
And, and, and so I really, res- I really respected the people who voted against me and tried to work with them. And even Elizabeth Warren, who really did, um, you know, I, I believe hold up my confirmation for quite a long time. I worked effectively with her once I was in the White House. I, I went up to her office. We talked about economic policy. She respected the confidences of our conversations and was a real pros pro. Um, and, and anyway, so so I think that that's an important reason to keep that list handy so that, that you know, uh, you know, that the, there are some people maybe that might wonder, oh, am I going to be able to work with Kevin? I voted against him. Maybe he holds a grudge. And you have to make sure they know you don't. So I want to talk about uh, the economy, Kevin, and I want to talk about how one should talk about the economy with an eye on 2024. And let's go with this premise. Let's assume President Biden's running for a second term. He still has an announcement. Let's assume he's seeking a second term. The question is going to be, how do you run against Joe Biden on the economy? You don't have the R word to use right now. You certainly don't have the D word to use. Uh, I go back to Mitt Romney in 2012. And what did Mitt Romney do, Kevin? 59-point economic plan, 160-page booklet. It was a lot of things beyond economics, but just that whole 59-point plan. It was just, you know, you couldn't digest it. It was just too much. Um, Here we are a decade later. Americans have an even shorter attention span than they did in 2012. You're running against this guy and trying to explain the economy. It's, you know, to me, it's kind of a classic half-empty, half-full economy in terms of which side you want to take. Let's talk about, actually, let's do it in two ways. Let's first of all talk about how you run against Donald Trump if you're on the Republican side, and then we'll segue to Biden. So let's begin with Trump. Um, The Trump record pre-COVID, and you were part of the Trump team for a while. Um, It's an impressive pre-COVID record, I must admit, just kind of doing some research for this in terms of all that that Trump did. Look, pre-February 2020, unemployment was at 3.5%. That was a 50-year low. Uh, there was growth of about 2.5%. I think the White House had forecasted three, but it was 2.5. Median household incomes had grown, inequality had uh, diminished, poverty rates among uh, Black Americans fell below 20% for the first time in post World War II. Um, good record to run on if you're Trump. And then COVID comes along and matters at all. But if you're a Republican going up against Trump right now, and, yeah, running against Trump is complicated. There's the whole cult of personality and how do you react when he comes after you? But how do you speak on economic terms? Sure. And 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 I just want to preface my answer by uh, just stating that I consider President Trump a friend. Um, I spent almost four years, you know, in the Oval Office interacting with him, seeing what a good guy he is uh, on the personal level with my staff. You know, somebody in my staff got sick, he would send him a note that he hopes yeah. to get better and 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 so on. And um, I let's, also- qual- let's qualify one other thing. Also, you take your past role at CEA very seriously. You don't endorse candidates. You don't Correct. come off the flag for candidates. Yeah, that, that's right. That's what I was about to say. So even yeah. for President Trump, um, you know, I would, of course, you know, if he wants to talk about how the economy is doing or what he should do or what arguments I would make against Ron DeSantis, then I would I would help him think about that. But if Ron DeSantis called me up and said, you know, if I'm, I'm running against Trump, what would you what would you say? Then I'll, I'll help him think yeah. about that as well. And, and um, you know, if Joe Biden called me up and said, what can I do to make the economy better? I'd, of course, talk to him. But I don't expect that phone call. Right. Uh, but but he should make that phone call and not necessarily to me. But but I think you should get a diversity of opinion. But to get to your question, I think that um, that that Donald Trump, that his uh, pe- you know, people will look back and and you hear this all the time and say just about what you said, that his I like his policies. I don't like the guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that his policies were really successful until COVID. But I think that even during COVID, um, you know, we could spend a whole podcast on that. Um, but even during COVID, he was incredibly ex- successful uh, 
getting like tests to be developed quickly with like smart economic policies that lit a fire under firms to have a competition to get tests ahead of the other guy. Um, he got the project warp speed really worked in developing a vaccine about a year faster than anyone thought possible. But again, it was because he signed off on incentives that made it so that everybody uh, was in a race, but they also had the money to be in the race. Um, so, so I think that given what we didn't know, given the alarmism of the uh, epidemiologists, that that he he did a way better job than Joe Biden would have. I don't think we would have got a vaccine as fast. I don't think we'd have got tests as quickly and so on. But I think that that COVID is such a negative thing um, that our experiences of being locked in our basements and watching our kids fall behind because they can't go to school and um, losing loved ones because of COVID, uh, especially when it's for stupid reasons, like they, we didn't protect the nursing homes enough and things like that, that, that I think that, that one of the things that is likely to happen for President Trump when he runs in the primary and he's up on the stage with people is that people are going to say to him this, they're going to say, you're the person who created Tony Fauci. Uh, and, and, and I think Americans, for the most part, except for maybe like, you know, NPR listeners have recognized, you know, how awful Tony Fauci was. And, and, you know, both as a human being and, and as a doctor and and the harm that he did uh, to, you know, psychologically to our kids. If you look at the suicide data um, and, you know, and economically to all the businesses that shut down, uh, we're still recovering from that. And and so I think that, that the the biggest policy weak point for President Trump will be, even though I think he was that he managed the COVID thing probably better than most presidents could have. But I, I would expect he's going to get attacked for the lockdowns, um, you know, especially if, if you look, if you compare, uh, th there's this wonderful uh, study out that, that you know, compares uh, COVID mortality uh, across countries. Mm -hmm. And the, the the country that had the lowest uh, per capita death rate uh, in like the whole civilized world was Sweden. Right. Right. Which was actually just open the whole time. And so, and so, and it was, you know, President Trump did, was taking the advice of experts when, when he you know, argued for the lockdowns and he did open up um, or allow the states to open up, uh, you know, faster than Fauci and those people wanted. I think probably if Fauci were still there and anyone was still listening to him, we'd probably still be shut down. Uh, I mean, this, this guy was really given bad advice to the president. But anyway, that's what I would I, if I if, if I were going after him, in addition to like the the you know personal things, reminding people of like his conflicts with John McCain and who's kind of a beloved figure is for, for me and, and for many Republicans. And then, you know, that kind of stuff, I'm not an expert in. But uh, but in terms of policy, he has so many successful policies that it kind of feels like the main thing to do is to go after him for the lockdowns and sort of right. say, if we if I were there, we never would lock down. And I bet you that that is gained some resonance with Republican people in the primaries. Hey, then let's play along and assume then if you're in the general election against Joe Biden, you do want to talk in economic terms. What is the soft underbelly of the Biden economy, Kevin? Yeah, um, you know, there, as you said, that in campaigns, you got to like you got to pick the thing that you want to say. And so, for example, when we were arguing for the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, you might recall that relying on academic work that I had published in peer reviewed journals, mm -hmm. that we estimated that the. Uh, that the corporate tax cuts would increase the blue collar wage by between four and $8,000. And, you know, I so said that was the result 
you know, the range of, of estimates from the literature that I presented to the president. He said, well, let's tell people pass the tax cuts, you get $4,000. And then you'll, you'll remember that that talking point, which came right out of academic work, it's sort of like exactly what why Hoover exists, right? Is that we write papers like that and then policymakers right. know what to do. That $4,000 talking point was pretty much repeated a million times. And then it worked as you, as you, you know, you know, that, that, um, by 2019, the the wage had actually gone up by 6,000. So it was right in the middle of the range that I gave to the president. Um, and, and so I think the tax cuts worked. Uh, Biden's uh, been pushing to reverse them. Uh, and I don't think that that's necessarily the kind of uh, thing that you can repeat over and over. It's like, oh, you know, my policies worked and then and you backed away from them. And that that's, that's not like catchy, right? So so for right. me, I think that, that if I were running against Biden, what I would do is I would I would say this, and, and I've seen some polling on saying this, um, that uh, we increased government spending enormously under COVID because we had all these things, the PPP and everything. And um, Biden and the Democrats irresponsibly have kept spending that high. Mm -hmm. And so if you ask Americans, COVID's over, do you think government spending should go back to normal? Right. You're, you know, your life is going back to normal. So shouldn't government go back to normal too? then everybody of both parties says yes. Uh, and yet Biden says no. Um, you know, he's got spending that's, you know, basically it's in 2025, it's gonna pass the COVID peak. That's how much they're spending. Um, and and so so I would, I would basically, and it's really easy to talk about how we're on a path, you know, between now and 2050 to be in a worse, worse fiscal situation than Weimar Germany before the hyperinflation. You know, we, there's just so many things uh, that you can point to about how this irresponsible spending has harmed, created inflation and harmed the economy. So thing one that I, I would do is I would just sort of say, spending needs to go back to normal. Right. You know, because it's not like spending needs to be cut because then it sounds like, you know, you're this person who's going to starve orphans to death or something like that. It's just like, let's just take spending back to normal. You know, we're, we're, we're spending, uh, you know, a trillion dollars a year more than we thought we'd be spending now in 2019 when we forecasted spending today. Yeah. We need to get back to the path of 2019. And so I think spending is normal, should get back to normal is something that definitely is appealing is appealing to voters. But then the other thing is that, you know, wages move slower than prices. It's like, you know, sticky wages is like, a, those they're part of every economic model pretty much. And, um, and so what that means is that the real purchasing power of Americans um, has been declining. And, um, you know, basically the average hourly earnings, which is like the wage measure in the employment report, um, right. has declined in real terms for 24 consecutive months. And that's the longest uh, a streak in American history. Right. And so we've had the longest negative streak for workers in American history. And while we're doing that, so when we know why we're doing it, it's because the runaway spending is causing inflation. So it's not, you know, like a really hard thing to connect. But while we're doing that, we've got, you know, Secretary Yellen and the president out there telling you, you know, you're stupid. That's great out there. You, you just don't understand. Mm -hmm. That kind of disconnect is what costs uh, HW, I, I think, uh, the White House. And I think that that's the place that if I were running against Joe Biden, I would try to steer him uh, in, in an economic debate. So the third T, there are three T's here. One is Trump, one is taxes, and the third one is temporary, as in things go off the books in 2025, the 37% top individual rate, the estate tax exception, the AMT, alternative minimum tax, and so forth. What do you fight for here? You know, I, I think making the Trump 
tax cuts permanent is something that'll be a rallying cry for Republicans. Um, and, you know, a lot of it phases out, not all of it. Some of the individual stuff was made permanent, um, which required, you know, basically weird Senate machinations because of something called the bird rule. But but there are some things that are permanent and some things that aren't, but they should all, you know, they, 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 they worked. It's been proven that they worked. They didn't uh, cause the country to go bankrupt. You know, we're raising more corporate revenue now than we were before the tax cuts because um, growth, it turns out, helps you with that over time. And and, and so I think that uh, making that stuff permanent is, is it, and that again is kind of like an easy thing to say, right? Right. We got these things, they worked. You remember how good it was in 2019 compared to how it is now? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, let's just make those policies that work so well permanent. That's the kind of thing that I'm sure that the Republican, I'm really sure that the Republican who is the nominee and is at the convention is going to say we need we need to make those tax cuts permanent. Uh, and, and you know, if it's DeSantis, he probably won't call them the Trump tax cuts. He'll probably call them, you know, the Republican tax cuts or something. But but that's that's for sure where we are. And, and it goes back to one time I was at an event with um, George W. Bush. Uh, and I was backstage talking to him before we were both going out on stage and and uh, we got to talking about the tax cuts because that's what I love. Right. And so, I mean, you can, you'd probably talk to him about the Iraq war first or something. Right. I don't know. I talked to him about baseball, actually. But go baseball. Ahead. Yeah, that's right, too. It, yeah, you would. In fact, I, I can attest to that. But um, but but one of the things he said to me was and, and then if you watch, if you go back and watch um, the way I talk about economic policy, I, I try my best to take his advice on this. He says that one of his biggest regrets when uh, of his, looking back on his time in, in the White House is that he allowed the tax cuts to be called the Bush tax cuts. Because as soon as they're the Bush tax cuts, then um, Democrats are gonna hate them right? Because for partisan reasons. But if they're just the tax cuts, then you know maybe some of them don't have to hate them. And so he thinks that, that we should really avoid naming policies after politicians, because then that creates like the tribalist response to the policy. And, and he really regretted the fact that the Bush tax cuts, but, but I gave a talk uh, at Brookings uh, when John Kerry was running against President Bush, where I um, attacked uh, my Democratic friends there. Uh, and one person came up and actually like literally was physically threatening towards me at the conference. Not that I was too worried about it or the other Brookings people, just like AEI people and whoever people are all nerds. They're not really that dangerous except for the generals. Right. <laughs> but what I said to them uh, was at the time that, you know, if I were running for president, I would do it because I thought I could make the country a better place. Right. If you're a patriot, you could see things that are broken and you really desperately want to fix them because you can have a chance to improve people's lives. Mm-hmm. And then, but economic models are not that precise, right? And and like economists are pretty good at knowing some stuff, but they don't, they haven't solved the problem of the economy. And so if you were to gather, you know, John Cochran uh, and a couple of other Hoover scholars uh, from the first floor, including me, I'm on the first floor, you know, Tyler Gisby, John Cochran and Kevin and and sort of say, so what should we do? We could come up with an agenda for you, mm-hmm. you, you know, for sure, that we all agreed on. It would take a while. But then if you went to the second floor and, and you asked John Taylor and Mike Boskin, say, uh, to develop policies for you, um, then they would do it, too. But they'd probably come up with different policies, right? And um, the thing that I said at the conference was that, uh, you know, the thing that really stuns me is that they're sort of like back then before... Kerry got the nomination, there were like seven 
candidates. And for every single one of them, their tax policy was to repeal the Bush tax cuts. And so there wasn't a single person who said, you know, I've been thinking a lot about tax. I think this is the tax code for the 21st century. Let's do that. Everybody, they just had like the simple thing, let's repeal the Bush tax cuts. Uh, and um, what I said to the crowd was, this shows you're not intellectually serious, you guys who are advising Democrats, because there's no economic model that says that we are at like the bliss point for taxes before the Bush tax cuts, that if we could just get there, then we're going to optimize social welfare in America. There's no model that says that. And so there's no reason why repealing the Bush tax cuts should be like the optimal economic policy that you're so excited about that you run for president. And that was that's what I said at the conference. And the point is that sadly, I think we're in another time like that. Um, and so yeah. now the Trump tax cuts... Democrats have to hate them. Republicans have to love them. And yeah, I can think of a lot of things that could take the Trump tax cuts and improve them. Um, but my guess is that that's not the conversation that we're going to be having. Well, if you're a Republican president, you're not getting a lot of you will not get a lot of favors from headline writers. They're going to call it the Hassett tax cut, whether you like it or not. But uh, <laughs> I'm shocked to hear that you could not get behind a Democratic candidate, a Democratic presidential candidate and senator from Massachusetts with the initials JFK. <laughs> Which, by the way, just shows you how superstitious people get with presidential policy. I can't can't tell you how many people I talked to in 2004 were just convinced John Kerry would win. Why? Because his initials were JFK, because he was from Massachusetts like Kennedy, because the convention was in Boston. The stars aligned, they would tell me. But it doesn't work that way, does it? You know, it'd be interesting, like a counterfactual history, that if you had a President Kerry, then you wouldn't have probably had a President Obama, at least not when you did. And I think President Obama was, was you know, a big disappointment to me. I was so excited when he was elected. I thought that it was a sign that maybe we are going to be able to heal our racial divide. We've elected a black president. It kind of shows that racism at least is on the decline in the U.S. because the majority of Americans voted for an African-American guy for president. And then he proceeded to come in and, you know, basically divide us on racial yeah, <laughs> on racial grounds and and and, and try and make the conflict worse and created you know all this uh, negative feeling that like so so if you think about who is really the person responsible for the turning point that got us to here I think it was Barack Obama and I don't think that John Kerry would have done that. So it's really funny. I was, uh, I guess this is a window to how Hoover fellows think, but I was on a deep walk across the campus not long ago, Kevin, and I was thinking along the same lines about tipping points. And I actually went to 2012 with Romney and Obama, because if Romney wins in 2012, maybe he gets reelected in 2016. We then have an open election in 2020. I don't know if Donald Trump is running in 2020 or not. Maybe there's a Democrat in the White House right now, so things aren't all that different. But you maybe avoid the Trump experience if Romney wins in 2012. So who knows? Yeah, it's possible. And, and, and you know, I, I know Mitt Romney. Uh, yeah, I'm from Massachusetts. He was governor of Massachusetts. He knew my mom. Um, and, you know, he's a good man. Uh, yeah. And he would have been a good president. OK, final question for you, Kevin. And I'll let you go. Um, going back to 2012 and Romney one last time. So he had the 59 point plan and then he quickly realized he could not go around the country giving speeches, laying out 59 points. It just didn't work. So his campaign came up with five themes from the plan to talk about. And I'm going to read you the five themes and let's talk about what is applicable in 2024 and what you might swap out. So here we go. First one, Kevin, Romney proposed a $4.8 trillion tax cut spread out over a decade. Mm-hmm. Secondly, he proposed capping federal spending at 20% of GDP. Third, he called for energy self-sufficiency. Fourth, he called for better schools. And bullet point number five, getting tough on China vis-a-vis -vis the trade imbalance. Yeah, I mean, and remember, I was an advisor of, of uh, 
you know, Governor Romney's uh, and now Senator Romney's uh, at that time and was you know, one of his main TV surrogates. And so I was out there talking about all those things. And and when you look at them, you can sort of see that, geez, that's pretty similar to what President Trump did right. when he was in the White House. And it's because there's a very strong economic literature support for each of those things. <laughs> right. And, and and that was, you know, it was true then. And it, it it was something that if you go back and look at all of the reports that that my team produced when I was running the Council of Economic Advisors, you know, we basically made a very academic scientific case for each of those things. And it's really quite strong. And and it's a nice place to end because it it, you know, Romney saw that, Trump saw that. The two of them aren't exactly best friends. Um, but they agreed on that because both men are curious. But they want they wonder how can I make the country a better place? And the thing that disturbs me is that the people running the Democratic Party now, although certainly not all Democrats, appear to have lost their curiosity. Um, okay. and, and 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 it's a very disturbing development for me. Okay, Kevin, we're going to leave it there. I sure appreciate your time, and I hope that we have at least satisfied some of your curiosity by having this podcast today. Really a pleasure to have you on, my friend. It's great to have you on campus. Thanks. It's great to be here, Bill. Thanks. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the globe. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our show. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Tell your friends about us. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's spelled H-O-O-V-E-R-I-N-S-T. Kevin Hassett. I found a million guys named Kevin Hassett on Twitter, but I don't think you're any of them, are you? No, I'm, I'm kind of opposed to Twitter. It's like a whole nother show. But yeah, I've, I've never tweeted once in my life. When I was at CEA, I had a chief of staff who tweeted for me, kind of. But yeah, I, I don't tweet. Maybe one reason why you always have a smile on your face, my friend. <laughs> I mentioned our website at the beginning of the show, which is hoover.org. While you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which keeps you updated on what Kevin Hassett and his Hoover colleagues are up to. Also, sign up for Hoover's Pod Blast, which delivers the best of our podcast each month to your inbox. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with a new installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.